Lord willing, time willing, we are going to try to do uh, verses 19 through 31 here of Romans chapter 3. We've been going at a pretty good pace here the last couple weeks. We're going to slow it down a little bit to make sure we get everything covered here this morning. Uh, this message is, uh, I really enjoyed this message today, continuing our study here through the book of Romans, because the last couple weeks have been some pretty heavy stuff. It's nice to sit back this morning and just talk about grace a little bit about just how much God loves us and, and what Christ did for us. Because with Romans, if you haven't been with us here, um, I've been doing the book of Romans for about a month or so. And when I use the word logical, I don't mean not spirit-led. But the book of Romans is a very logical book on theology. Theology is usually a very boring word, but it's anything but that when you really start studying it out. In Romans 1, Paul introduces us to the concept of the gospel, the good news. He says then in Romans 1 that creation is God's greatest witnessing tool for the gospel. But then he says in Romans 1 that the creation has been perverted through sin. Then in Romans 2, in the first part of Romans 3, he says we're all sinners, all of us. doesn't matter your nationality. doesn't matter your religious background. We're all sinners, and that sin keeps us from having a relationship with God. But here in the rest of Romans 3... He then explains how that sin can be taken care of. And I just really enjoyed this message. In fact, on the way out to the uh, first service this morning, Classic uh, Northwest Ohio got stopped by one of those trains that was going, oh, about a mile an hour, it seemed like. And so I had all this time. So I'm sitting there. And so I just got the Bible and I started just rereading the verses that we're going to go through this morning. When I got done to the end of these, this chapter, I just smiled and thought, wow, Lord, your grace, you just love us. And what a beautiful thing it is as we study this and as we go through this. So I was blessed by this message, and I hope you're blessed by this message as well. So with this being said, let's start here. Romans 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law. Now, the law is something that we actually try to stay away from, right? That's the boring stuff. Anytime someone first gets saved or they rededicate their life to Christ, they're excited about God, they're excited about His Word. And so what you see them doing is they want to start reading the Bible. So they come to me and they said, I'm, I'm going to start reading the Word. And I said, well, that's great. I would say, start on one of the Gospels. Do one of the Gospels. And once you get done with one of the Gospels, go do like First John or James. And now oh, I want to start in Genesis. Oh, don't start in Genesis. Because what happens if you start in Genesis? And it's inevitable that they want to start in Genesis, so they start in Genesis. Genesis is really good, the first few chapters. And you got that one chapter of genealogy right at the beginning. They work through that. The rest of Genesis is pretty good. Exodus is pretty exciting because we've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, so we get to read about it. You get to the middle part of Exodus, right around Exodus 19.20, where the law starts. That's, they can usually make it through Exodus. Then comes Leviticus. At Leviticus, I get a phone call. Do I need to read Leviticus? Well... Yeah, this is why I told you to start in the Gospels. We try to stay away from this stuff. And I tell you, the law is actually fascinating when you stop and you study it out. The purpose of the law, though, because we sit here and we read this and you say, why am I reading this stuff? I don't care what happens if my ox gores your ox. It means nothing. The purpose of the law is found at the end of verse 20. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law. So when you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you're reading the purpose is to show that you are a sinner and that you're not right with God. The purpose of the law is for you to read these books and to say, I can't do this. I can't follow all these dietary rules and dietary laws. I can't follow all these cleanliness laws. It's impossible for someone to do this their entire life and not mess up. And God says, that's the whole point of the law. It's to show you, verse 20, sin. Or as it says in verse 19, the end of it, that every mouth may be stopped. 
and all the world may become guilty before God. The purpose of the law is for you to say, Lord, I can't. And God says, yeah, that's the point. Because once you realize you can't, you can then move on to the other idea of I need someone to save me because I can't save myself. Turn, if you will, to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Let's build on this a little bit here. That law points us towards Christ. And we'll build on this as we go through the message here. But the law reveals our sin. The law shows us we're guilty. And then the law points us towards Christ. Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and start in verse 22. Galatians 3 verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. We're all guilty. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. See, that's the purpose of the law. The law was supposed to point us towards sin, to say that we are sinners. We can't do this on our own. And that law then drove us towards Christ. That's the purpose of it. And I just don't get sometimes you run into people today that want to go back and almost live under the law. No, the law has served its purpose. Revealed my sin, showed me I can't do it, then it points me towards Christ. Now, every now and then you read these books, and this has been a thing that's been a phase uh, here as of late in Christian community, of people going back and trying to live under the law. Some of them are doing it just to see what it's like as Christians. Other ones are doing it almost as non-believers. I know there was a book where a guy, I think, did it for a year. There's a gal that tried it for a month or so. And the whole point is it's, it's, it's impossible to follow every dietary restriction, to follow every uh, hygiene restriction. It's impossible. And the truth of the matter is living in the 21st century, where are you going to find a temple to offer your sacrifices? It's impossible. But yet... You see in Christianity, people wanting to bring the elements of the law into this. See, in Galatians, just if you're still in Galatians, just jump back to verse 1 of Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you crucified? He then goes on to Galatians saying, why would you want to do this? See, here's the problem, and here's the deeper issue. See, what happens sometimes in Christianity is there's the Jesus ands, and then there's the Jesus onlys. See, the Jesus ands are, I believe that Jesus is my Savior, my salvation for sin, but Jesus and fill in the blank. I will believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins, and I will do X, Y, and Z. Jesus and. But what we teach and believe and what the Bible teaches is it's Jesus only. Nothing to add. See, once you start adding something to Christ, then he's not your Savior. It's him and something else. It's Jesus only. And so if you want to bring the law into your relationship with Christ, you better not be trusting on that law to be anything to save you. Because the law can't do it. The purpose of the law was to reveal your sin, to reveal your imperfection, which then takes us now to verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law was revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there's a big word there, righteousness. Righteousness just means to be made right, to be made right spiritually. I was wrong and now I've been made right. Look in Romans 3 verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. So since I'm not righteous, I have to be made righteous. I can't be made righteous on my own. That's the purpose and point of Jesus Christ. I have no righteousness in me. In fact, this word righteousness is used 30 times alone here in the book of Romans. Most of any book in the Bible used in the book of Romans. It's the righteousness of God, not me. And this is what happens in this situation, is that people think there's something in them, something in them, 
that's redeemable. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but he saw something in me. No, he didn't. He saw sin in me. But Jesus knew that I would be good at this, and, 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 he, and therefore he used me in that capacity, and so therefore I was saved to serve this purpose. No, you were saved because you were a sinner. See, if you think there's something redeeming in you, then you don't accept the fact that you're not righteous. You have to accept the fact that I'm a sinner and that there's nothing redeeming in me in any way whatsoever. I have no righteousness in me. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26. See, Paul's argument here in the book of Romans is he introduces us to the gospel, introduces us to the creation, says that we're all sinners. And that's what we talked about the last couple weeks is now we're all sinners. Well, now he's going to the good stuff. Now as sinners we can be saved. Well, here's the problem is there's some of us that accept the fact we're sinners, but we think there's something redeeming in us. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There's nothing righteous in you. There's nothing righteous in me. Matthew 26 reveals this. Look at Matthew 26, verse 36. This is the evening before Christ was to be crucified. He's in the garden praying, knowing that his death is coming near. Matthew 26, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Did you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Now, the reason I go to this passage is for two reasons. This reason number one, and I use this word carefully, and, and don't hold it against me. This is one of the few times in the Bible where it almost actually looks like God needed us. And I use that word lightly because God never needs us. But this is the closest you see to God needing somebody. Jesus is at the end of his life and he's sorrowful and he's distressed and he's saying, hey, just, just stay awake and pray with me. And what happens? They fall asleep, they fall asleep, they fall asleep. That's us. But what is God supposed to use us for? We just sleep on the job. There's nothing redeeming in us. The closest we ever see in the Bible of God actually saying, hey, I could use a hand... And we're just asleep, spiritually. And it has this great passage here in verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, we look at that word weak and we say, yeah, the flesh is weak. I have, don't have strength a lot in my flesh. But, but I know that there's something in me that wants to be good. There's something in me that wants to go deeper in the, in the Lord. And, and I know that God saw that. No, there's nothing in you. That word weak in the original Greek, it's actually a Greek word, a dunatos, which A means no, and dunatos reads strength. So the literal translation is the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh has no strength. There's no strength in our flesh in any way whatsoever. There is nothing redeemable in us. There is no righteousness on my own. If there was righteousness on my own, I could try to make myself right with God. That's impossible. And so therefore, my righteousness, being right with God only comes through Jesus Christ and through Christ alone. Jump back now, if you will, to Romans 3. See, it's the righteousness of God, verse 22, in Jesus Christ. And this righteousness has been revealed in verse 21 by the law and the prophets. Did you catch that? See, when you go back and read the law and the prophets, you're really looking for Jesus. If you go back and read Leviticus and you read about all these sacrifices and how to skin the animal and what to do with the flesh, you're going to sit there and say, I'm getting absolutely nothing out of it. Go back and read the law 
through the lens of Christ. I encourage you, if this interests you, go back and get online or ask for the CDs from the sound guys. We did a study in Leviticus a while ago, and I tell you, I loved it. Because every sacrifice, all the festivals, we talked about how they're a picture of Jesus. And when you look at it through that lens, it's like now it starts to make sense. Same thing with the prophets. Those Old Testament prophets are some deep stuff. You got Jeremiah, you got Ezekiel, you got Isaiah, 66 books of Isaiah. You know how many times in the book of Isaiah we say the same thing? The Assyrians are coming from the north. They will defeat Israel. And then Babylon's going to come, and they're going to defeat Judah. If that's all you get out of it, you'll be bored out of your mind. But when you really look through the book of Isaiah and you look through the prophets for Christ, all of a sudden it starts to be, as it says there in verse 21, revealed. Jesus said, the book is written about me. So when I go back and I read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I'm not trying to read the law. I'm trying to say, Lord, where are you in this? When I go back and look at the prophets, yes, I'm studying out the prophecies to see how they're going to be fulfilled, but I'm also saying, Jesus, where are you in this? And when you start looking at it from that perspective, it all of a sudden just starts to make sense. What a blessing it is. And so you see the righteousness of God because we need this righteousness. Once again, verse 10 of chapter 3, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And then once you get righteousness, you finally understand verse 24, grace. Ah, grace is a beautiful word. Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. I don't deserve heaven, but yet grace, I have it. See, if we still think that there's something in us that's kind of good, we don't understand grace. Well, God saved me. Why? Because uh, he, he knew that I would be a, a good pastor. God saved me. Why? Because he knew I, I'd be a good parent. God saved me. Why? Because he knew I'd be a light and a witness to this next generation. No, there was nothing redeeming in you. Nothing redeeming in any way. Because that's how you had God's righteousness and that's how you got God's grace. And how did you get God's grace? You got it, verse 24, freely. Freely. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I should probably say please. That sounded a little forceful. Turn to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Please, if you have your Bibles with us, turn to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you don't have your Bible, take your neighbors. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This passage sums up everything we need to know. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's God's grace. Nothing to do with me. It's grace. Through faith. That faith part. I'm going to be the first one to get up here and say, and I, and I hope, I don't, uh, hope you don't think less of me. I don't fully understand everything in this Bible stuff. It takes faith. You know, I, I believe with all my heart that there's a heaven and that there's a hell. I believe that God came down in the form of man and Jesus, died on the cross for my sins, three days raid arose again, and that is what gives me entrance into heaven. I believe that all for all of eternity that I have salvation in Christ. Now, how do I know this? Through faith. I didn't see Jesus 2,000 years ago. I didn't see him rise from the dead three days later. I didn't see him ascend 40 days later. I didn't see any of that. I've never seen heaven. I've never seen hell. But in faith, I believe this. And by faith, I have that grace. And that not of yourselves. Verse 8, it has nothing to do with me. Not of yourselves. Nothing to do with me. There is nothing I have done to earn this grace. It is a gift of God not of works. I haven't done anything good redeeming in my life for God to say, you know, James, I want you because you're really good at helping those old ladies across the street. No, not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. I have nothing to boast about when it comes to my walk with Christ because it's grace. It's all him. Nothing to do with me. Nothing. I deserve the punishment. It's only by God's righteousness that I have been made right. It's only by God's grace that I have been forgiven. This is Paul's point has nothing to do with us. That's grace. We had a situation at the Irvin house, I think it was on a Friday. Kenan, at lunchtime, our third child was just being bad, all day just being bad. And then something had happened at lunch where I don't even remember for sure what it was, but I think he was trying to do a handstand on the lunch chair or something like that. And we thought, that we have to deal with this. So Kenan, 
come, grab the wooden spoon, go to the bedroom. So Kenan comes. Now, it's kind of interesting when the kids know that they're going to be disciplined because Judah, our second one, if he thinks he's going to get disciplined, he just loses it. I mean, the discipline to him is just the thought of being disciplined. Kenan, he'd smile on the way to the electric chair. You know, he'd just be... <laughs> so I take Kenan in, and, and we sit down on the bed. I have him. I have the spoon. I say, Kenan, what did you do wrong? He told me what he did wrong. Kenan, what do you think I should do about this? He goes, I should be, I should be spanked. And I said, yes. Why do you think he should be spanked? should be spanked because what I did was wrong. He knows all the answers. So I get ready. I, I get ready to spank him. He looks at me and he goes, Dad. And I said, what? He goes, can I have grace? He says, can I have grace? Now, Kenan's also manipulative. So <laughs> I said, do you know what grace is? He goes, grace is you decide not to spank me. And I said, why would I decide not to spank you? And he says, because you love me. So Kenan did not get spanked. Now, now, before someone thinks that we're weak or whatever, there are times where the kids ask for grace and mercy, and we still say we need to make a point here. But the point is, is that not a picture of our Heavenly Father? I'm sitting on God's knees. I deserve punishment. I just look at God, and I say, Dad, can I have grace? He says, yeah. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I haven't done anything to get it. I asked for grace, and he says, yeah, you can have grace. And so, therefore, I have grace freely because I asked. Nothing I did to earn or get or prove myself. That's what Paul is trying to say here. The only way we have righteousness is through God's righteousness. The only way you have grace is through Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do on your own about it. It is through him and him alone, and he gives it to you freely. If the only thing you get out of this morning is salvation has nothing to do with you, then that's good. Because there's still a mindset in Christianity today of either, A, I was saved because I serve a bigger purpose. God saw something in me. No. Or I'm saved because of Jesus and fill in the blank. No. You're saved because Jesus and Christ alone. So we introduce now to our next big word, verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That just means they didn't strike us with lightning as soon as we committed a sin. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now we have big words today. We have righteousness to be made right in God. Used 30 times alone in the book of Romans, like I said. Most of any book in the Bible. Next word we had was grace. Used 20 times. 20 times here in the book of Romans, the most of any book in the Bible. Now we're introduced to propitiation. I'm willing to bet that none of you in the last month or year have used the word propitiation in everyday use or language. In fact, the last time I probably used the word propitiation was probably the last time I read Romans 3.25. Propitiation is a fancy word that literally means mercy seat. It carries back an Old Testament picture that on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were the two covering cherub, the two covering angels, and blood would be sprinkled on this mercy seat, and that would cover the sins of Israel for a year. And so propitiation means appeasement, it means sacrifice, that that sacrifice has covered sin. But from a Jewish perspective, when you would see that word propitiation, you would automatically think of the mercy seat on the Ark, the Day of Atonement, the God's blood, the, excuse me, the blood of rams covered the sin of Israel for a year. Well, Jesus is our propitiation. His blood covers my sin. Now, here's the interesting thing about this idea of sin, is what Jesus actually did. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews 10. Let's build on this for a little bit here to really fully understand, because this is what happens. A lot of us know, oh yeah, I understand what righteousness is. I understand what grace is. I even understand what propitiation is. I, I know the word. But do we fully understand this word? Look at here at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. 
You've got to know a little bit of Old Testament here. We've used this analogy before, so bear with me. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Genesis 3, the ratio was one to one. One animal died for every person that sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. Animals were, were killed to create clothing for them, and that clothing covered their nakedness, a picture of covering sin. Well, you jump ahead to the book of Exodus, Passover, it was now one lamb to an entire family. So we went from one to one, now to one lamb for an entire family. Well, now you jump ahead to the Day of Atonement, it's one ram for the entire nation. Well, now you jump ahead to Jesus, it's one man for the entire world. You can see how it just kept building. It would be a picture of Christ. Well, look here at Hebrews 10, verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. Think of Old Testament. That's what they did all day. When we went through our book of Leviticus, we talked about the, the uh, bronze altar there and how huge it was. And they just constantly were sacrificing animals all day. These priests just repeatedly, daily, all day, offered sacrifices, which never took away sin. It just covered their sin up until Christ came. It's a lot of work. Well, now compare it to Christ in verse 12. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. One man, one sacrifice, and by the way, I'm done now, I'm sitting. It's over, it's done. Old Testament, repeatedly offering sacrifices again and again just to cover sin up, couldn't take away the sin. This work, work, work. Jesus, one man, one sacrifice. I'm going to sit down now. The Bible uses the word justified. He's the justifier. I heard a pastor say one time, justified means just as if I never sinned. Righteousness means to be made right in God. Grace, getting something we don't deserve. Propitiation, the sacrifice has appeased God's penalty. And then justification, to be made right, just as if I never sinned. That's what Christ does. So when you put this all together now, jump back, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What do we have to be proud about? Are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved. Why are you saved? God saw something in me to use. No, he didn't. He saw sin. Why are you saved? I'm saved because, you know, um, deep down in my heart I'm really a good person. No, you're not. The Bible says you're full of sin. You're saved because the righteousness of God became your righteousness through Christ, because you experienced grace because you had sin, because Jesus was a propitiation, which means he paid the penalty of sacrifice of sin, and he has now justified you and made you right. We didn't do anything. The only thing that we did on the cross was put the nails into his hand. That is what Paul is trying to say here. It's not just enough to know at the end of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3 that we're all sinners. I mean, seriously, I, I've really only met a couple people in, in my time that really thought that they did not sin. I remember back when I was going to college at Northwest State, there was this group that came down and set themselves up in the middle of the atrium and, and proclaimed that if you still sin, you can't be saved. I met a guy a few years ago that um, said he doesn't sin. I took him to 1 John. If anyone says that we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. Still said, I don't sin. I was feeling a little frisky that day. And I said, well, you just lied. You did. So it didn't work out for him at church out here. But the point is, it's this mindset we accept the fact that we sin. I think we all accept the fact. But yet, now when we get into this study here in Romans 3, do we accept the fact that there's nothing redeeming in us? See, that goes from one level. See, I can accept the fact I'm a sinner. But then to say there's nothing redeeming in me, that's tough. But that's what Paul is trying to say here because then he takes us now to Romans 4 next week where he stops and he says, you know what? 
There's nothing redeeming in you, but God still loves you. And that's where faith comes in. And he uses the wonderful example of Abraham as an example of coming to know the Lord through faith. And that's what we get into next week in Romans 4. Jump back, if you will, to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This verse, once again, has everything in it. What I want to do here in verse of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I want to actually go back a little bit. Start in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I think as Christians we could do a better job of mentioning how much God loves us. If you go up to the typical non-believer, atheist in the world, and you ask them about God, they can list everything that God's against. They can list everything that Christianity is against. But I've never heard an atheist come up and say, you know what, the thing that always I don't like about Christianity is that whole thing of God loves me. They don't get it. But yet, verse 4, his great love in which he loved us. Listen, I, I know what God doesn't like. I know the sins he hates. I've seen the billboards. I've seen the signs. I know. But he also just loves us. Verse 5, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even while I was still a sinner, he just loved me. He just loved me. Verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's not that he just loved me, but he brought me in as an equal with him. I mean, that's, that's love. To, to not only just love me in my sin, but then to bring me to a place of equality, where I don't mean equality with God, but I mean equality in the sense of I get to live with him in heaven. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's the purpose of heaven? Is verse 7 that for all of eternity he can show me how much he loved me. See, that's amazing. See, I think sometimes if we would present Christianity and its truth like this, it really carries a whole lot more weight. What's the purpose of heaven? So for all of eternity, God just wants to show me how much he loves me. His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now we understand, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that I am saved, verse 10, now I have the purpose. Now God will use me. He doesn't use me. Or I shouldn't say he doesn't save me because there was something in me. Now that I am saved, I'm now usable. It's hard for people to grasp this. One last story and then we're done. And I've shared this story with you, so uh, it bears repeating. Um, we started up a Bible study in our house when we uh, first lived in McClure. It was in the uh, winter of 96 we started up this Bible study. And uh, we were going, I was going to Northwest State at the time. We had a bunch of college kids come over and um, started this study up in the house, and God was really blessing it. And there was this guy that came over and came to study. Kind of one of those things that where you go up and you invite somebody to study, you don't think they're going to come. I don't know if you have anybody like that. Hey, you should come to church with me sometime. Oh, yeah, maybe I'll be there. And then they show up, and you really don't know what to do. So this guy showed up. I don't know what we're supposed to do. He's not saved, you know? So we sit there, we go through the study, we're going through Genesis, because I was an idiot, that's, we started in Genesis. See, I know what I'm talking about here. Hey, let's study the buddy. Hey, Bible, let's start in Genesis. Hey, that's where we should start. So we start in Genesis. You know what happened when we got done with Genesis? We did First John, because see, I learned. So, studied through Genesis, he shows up, and we go through the study, and it's, it's getting late, and I could tell that his, his soul was ripe. He really wanted this. He really, really wanted this. And so it was just him, me, and Dawn that were left there after the study was done. And it was just, we were just talking about the Lord and talking about what salvation is. And if you remember the story, we had our apartment in McClure, and it was a tiny, tiny little apartment. It had one extra room, which is the bathroom that you could shut the door. In fact, the shower was out in the open that you had to hang a curtain. I mean, it was just a small little apartment. And so he didn't know Dawn. He didn't really know me that well, but he wanted to talk about the stuff he'd gone through in his past. 
but he didn't want Dawn to know about it. So God bless my wife. I pick on her a lot, but she's done one good thing in her life, and here's the one good thing. is She, she went into that bathroom, tiny bathroom, stayed in there for about two hours so I could talk to this guy. The thing that this guy could not get through, and this, I still remember him distinctly saying this. We were sitting on the couch. He looked at me. He goes, it's too easy. I kept saying, that's the point. He goes, it's too easy. That's the point. You're saying everything I've ever done is forgiven just like that. Yeah. You say, I have entrance into heaven just like that. Yeah. It's too easy. And that's where that verse in Corinthians that I like to quote a lot where it says the simplicity of Jesus. Isn't that the beautiful part about Christianity? It's that easy. There's nothing redeeming. I get righteousness through God. I get grace through God. I get justified through God. And I get propitiation through God. It's that easy. I ended up accepting the Lord. Uh, 15 years later, he's married down in Columbus, still walking with Jesus, and it's a really neat thing. But the neat part about it is it was too easy. And so that's where any time I talk about salvation, it's easy. Some of you probably don't even know sometimes out here at church we do an altar call because I'll do something like this. You know what? If you're interested in a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is all you have to do. There's a heaven and there's a hell. Jesus came down, died on that cross for your sins because that cross represents the punishment that I deserve, that you deserved for our sin. He paid the debt, the penalty that I could not pay. I had a bill I could not pay of sin, and so therefore he paid it for me. And by him dying on the cross, he took care of the punishment for my sin, so therefore I accept his payment on my behalf, propitiation, and so therefore when I accept his payment, I then now have grace. I now have righteousness. I've been made right. I am now justified, just as if I've never sinned. God now accepts me for all of eternity into heaven. And because I believe on this, and believe does not just mean agreeing that it happened, acknowledging the truth. Believing means I place my life in it. I have salvation. It's that simple. It's that easy. That's what the gospel message is. And this is where Paul has taken us to now in Romans 4. He's brought this wonderful point. You've been created, but you're a sinner and now you need grace. And when it all comes together like that, it's a beautiful, beautiful church. That's why when I got done with this lesson today, and that's when I got done reading again, waiting on that train, I just had to smile. Because verse 27, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Take out that phrase, a man, and put your name in there. Therefore we conclude that James is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. I like that. I don't have to do anything. Jesus took care of it for me. And so for I acknowledge my sin, I accept his sacrifice, and I have salvation. And now I go live for him. That's the simplicity of Christ. you got to love it. I if you're going to come forward here for the final song.